let's do it. Okay, so no, okay. no more of that dirty talk. That's enough <laughs> of that. I'm, you come back from Montreal with such a dirty mouth. How can that be, uh -oh. Rabbi Josh? <laughs> Stop talking about Mike Regal. <laughs> oh, you weren't supposed to say that. <laughs> I hope he's better. Uh, he's back. He was suffering so much the last time he was on one of these calls. Okay, chapter 36, page 399. This is a fundamental chapter in the study of Chabad philosophy and the study of Tanya. It really is fundamental. Fundamental to understanding our, uh, our purpose and existence. It's a very existential chapter. And it's a direct continuation from chapter 35. In chapter 35, we, we started off with a question. This Bainini is constantly fighting his impulses. And he's going to be a fighter. He's never going to win. He's just going to be a fighter. God says, I don't want you to be a winner. I want you to be a fighter. That's the success I want to see. So what's the point in fighting? What's the point in fighting the animal soul if he's never totally going to love God as the tzaddik would? Behaviorally, he's always going to be in check, but emotionally, he's never going to gain perfection. What is the point? And our response was, throughout the course of chapter 35, that a relationship needs to be focused more on action than on passion. Because when it's focused on passion, it focuses on how I feel about the relationship. When it focuses on action, it's the relationship itself that's important. So if my goal in life is to love God, then really my goal in life is to get a experience, an uplifting experience. It's a holy experience, but it's, it's a self-oriented experience. But if it's about doing God's will, then the experience will be motiv will motivate that, but it's really about getting the job done. What does God want from me? Right? So there's how do I feel about doing mitzvahs? And there's actually doing mitzvahs. Ideally, we want to bridge both worlds together. We want that which God finds meaningful to be meaningful to us. But it's not always because we're not a tzaddik. And at times we're not going to find Judaism meaningful 100% of the time. A relationship is not going to be 100% of the time perfect. And we still need to just do it because that's really the focus of the relationship. That was, that was the gist of chapter 35. Why is action so important, though? Why is action more important than passion in a relationship, in a relationship with God? The answer is based on a quote from our sages. Let's take a look on um, chapter, let, let's take a look on 399, the first bold paragraph, it's in the middle of the page. Now this thing is known the teaching of our sages of blessed memory. This is very important. 
The sages teach from the Midrash that the ultimate purpose for which the world was created was that the Blessed Holy One desired to have a home for himself in the lowest of realms. What motivated God to create the world? What was God missing? In other words, if God is perfect, what does he need a world for? The answer is he had a desire, a deep desire. And there's so much to talk about here, but we'll try to unpack this slowly. God had a deep desire for there to be a home for himself in the lowest of realms. Which means the purpose of existence centers not around heaven, but actually around earth, around the lowest of realms, around this physical world. Which means my focus should be this world, which is mitzvah's action. Not the higher worlds, not heaven, not passion. Not to say that passion in Judaism is not important. And that it's not, not to say that it isn't crucial either. It is. But what is the ultimate goal? It's not to go to heaven, but it's actually to be here in earth, on earth. So I could feel very passionate about tefillin. I could understand its deep mystical meanings and what it does to my soul and how it impacts the, the, the heavenly uh, celestial cosmic systems as discussed in the Kabbalah. And I could understand and be passionate about this. But if I'm not going to do the action, I essentially went to heaven, but for what? <laughs> I didn't come back to earth. The point is to bring everything from heaven down into earth. Otherwise, we could have just stayed in heaven. Our souls didn't need to come down. And we'll talk about more of that in, in chapter 37. Um, in other words, focusing on passion, the higher of worlds is self-oriented. Focusing on action is God-oriented because that's what God really wants. He wants us to be down here. You know, I think about this a lot in my own life. Pleasanton, if I'm being honest, is very much out of my comfort zone. <laughs> it is. Not being able to go to a minion three times a day, as I'm used to, to go to mikvah before davening, to have a shul packed with people, to have kosher restaurants, just to, to, to have that Jewish environment as I did in LA or in Brooklyn or in Montreal, it's very difficult. What am I doing in Pleasanton? Well, the answer is, it's not about me. <laughs> I didn't come to Pleasanton for me. There was a need in Pleasanton to be here. So I'm here. The soul has the same experience. It's very comfortable in heaven. It basks in the rays and the light of God. It experiences deep passion and reverence for God. Its appreciation of God's existence is very, what's the word I'm looking for? Surreal. It's very relatable. So what does it come down to this world for? 
Why did our souls come down to this world? It's not because it's more, what? Because uh, souls needed here, just like you're needed, needed in Pleasanton. Our souls are needed here in this world, in this physical world. Otherwise, if it was just about our own comfort, we can go back to Montreal, go back to Brooklyn. But the soul needs to be here into this physical world. Not because it needs to gain, because it needs to give. What it needs to give, what it needs to bring to this world is God's presence. Focusing on love of God as essentially escaping the world. And that's appropriate sometimes. There's times where we need to escape the world. There's times where we need to feel that we're that we need to realize we are above the world. But we have to take that passion that we have of us being above the world and bring it into the world. And that's the mitzvahs. Bringing God's will into the physical fabric of existence. Do we believe the soul wants to come here or is the soul forced to come here? That's a good question. There's a per chaos that answers that. Against your, you were, uh, against your soul's wishes, you were created. Against your soul, soul's wishes, you were... I don't remember the exact way it says, but it says it's against your wishes, you came down, essentially. Right. It says against your will, you have been born, and it's against your will that you die. Right. So does the soul want to be here, or does the soul not want to be here? And the answer is yes. Yes and no. It's not comfortable here. In terms of its own comfort, it doesn't want to be here. Hmm. In terms of its mission, um, it wants to be here. In terms of its opportunity, it wants to be here. So it kind of depends on what our focus is. So Pleasanton is a good analogy for you. It, it's a, it, it, yeah, like LA too is too real of an LA, analogy. LA is heaven and Pleasanton is earth. <laughs> is earth. So, heaven is full of kosher restaurants for the soul. Hmm. Yes, full of Chinese food and diet. I was just about to say, all you need is Shanghai. <laughs> Black and so, white cookies everywhere. Exactly. So, so, so when we're fo- when I'm focused, and I'll be honest, when I'm focused on my own comfort, I, I often ask myself, what am I doing here? Hmm. This is not very comfortable. It's only three or four times a day, though, I'm sure. <laughs> But when I'm focused on my mission and on the opportunities that that there are here, in many ways, you know, it makes sense to be here. And I'm I'm just using that as an analogy to understand Tanya, or it's really the other way around. And and Tanya helps me understand the story of me. And but Tanya is the same, does the same thing with you and with everybody who learns it. It really is the story of you. What are we doing here in this world? Or to put it or more grammatically correct, what in the world are we doing here? <laughs> well, how did we end up here? Why are we here? We're here to illuminate the world. We're here because we have something to give. Because if it was just about gaining an experience, we can better do that in heaven. Now, that experience 
experience is necessary. I'm not negating the need for a positive Jewish experience and I'm not negating the need for inspiration. We need that because we need motivation. We need fire. We need it. But it's not the, uh, it's a means to an end. Love is a means to an end in a relationship. So question has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm good at those. Um, when you're praying and you are, you feel one with God, are you in heaven? Good question. This, that very, this has everything to do with what we're talking about. Very good question. Very good question. That is a heavenly experience. It might be akin to a heaven or to some degree to a heavenly experience. But the goal of prayer is that it should actually impact the animal soul as well. That way it's actually, it's not just about the experience, but it's actually doing um, its goal to impact the physical world. Uh, which means prayer to some degree should make me appreciate God on a very human level, on a very relatable level. Prayer should make my relationship with God very relatable. Then it's doing its job. If it's just inspirational, it may just be touching my divine soul. And my divine soul doesn't need it that much. But if God is more relatable after I pray, to some degree, on a very practical level, it's doing its job. There's this story with, um, his name was, I think his name was Gershon Berry. He was a chassid of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shnerson, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe father-in-law of the Lubavitcher heaven. And he used to translate his prayers into Yiddish. Like you were, like you were doing, uh, David, like in English. He would do that in Yiddish. And somebody asked him, uh, Gershon Bear, you speak Hebrew. Why are you translating your prayers into Yiddish? You know, this Gershon was a, this chassid was a, scholar he was well versed in torah and and hebrew was not a language that was at all foreign to him so they said why are you translating it into yiddish you know hebrew so he says yes i know hebrew but my animal soul knows yiddish and i want prayer to talk to my animal soul that's ultimately the goal and that's ultimately the goal in judaism it um it, i should connect to it on a very human level Rabbi Gordon Sr., Rabbi Gordon of blessed memory in, in, in Sino, California, in Southern California, his father was a hospital chaplain in New Jersey. And he would go around the hospital meeting Jews, encouraging Jews, and he would offer them the opportunity to put on tefillin. And he says to this one Jew, let's put on tefillin together. He says, Rabbi, no, thank you. I'm Jewish in my heart. And he says, that's why you keep having to come back to the cardiologist. <laughs> you got to spread it out. That's ultimately the goal. Ultimately, the goal in Judaism is that our Jewish, that's why Judaism is really focused on observance, not just on faith. Because it's about bringing God into this world, not just about leaving this world to experience him. A dwelling place in the lowest of realms. What does the lowest of realms mean? 
how could God be in the lowest of realms? Uh, like, shouldn't he be here already? Isn't God everywhere? In chapters uh, 20 through 24, 23, we spoke extensively about, about how God exists everywhere because he's creating everything. Even this physical world is an expression of him. We've spoken in the past about the difference between saying there is one God and God is one. Like we say in the Shema, Hashem Echad, God is one. A profound difference. To say there is one God, that means, okay, there's one God as opposed to two, three, or four. But to say that God is one is to say that he's one with everything in existence because he creates it all. To say that God is one is to say that God is incredibly relevant because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. If that's the case, what mission do we have in bringing God to this world if he's already here? Right? The answer on page 400, he is here. He is very present. But that doesn't mean the world perceives it that way. Let's take a look, sorry, let's take a look at the bottom of 399, the last paragraph, bold paragraph on the bottom of 399. Now, obviously, this Midrash is metaphorical. When it says God, well, we want God to dwell in the lowest of realms, we don't mean geographically the lowest of realms. Since the notion of being present in the upper and lower worlds is not applicable to God, because he fills all worlds equally, he's everywhere. So rather, let's go to page 400. How do we understand this? So before the world was created, the only thing that existed was God. Now that God created the world, do you know what changed? Nothing. At least not from his perspective. From our perspective, if you will, things have changed. God seems absent but he is very much present. And he says here, here um, second bold paragraph, before the world was created, God was the one and only one. And he filled the entire space in which the world was created, leaving no room for any other existence. And the same is true now from God's perspective. There's only a change from the recipient's perspective, those who receive his energy and light. So from the recipient's perspective, which means if you were compare our perspective to heaven's perspective, God is more present in heaven than he is on earth. But in reality, God is everywhere. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an analogy. Imagine you have a teacher teaching a classroom full of students and each student is on a different level, right? And the teacher is de teaching very difficult, a very difficult concept. The higher level student is going to have a higher level of comprehension. The lower level student is not going to have as high a level of comprehension. But the information is the same information for both students. 
the teacher is giving over the same information. One is able to perceive more, one is able to perceive less. Neither of them are in the actual mind of the teacher though. And it's the same thing comparing our relationship to God compared to heaven's relationship to God. In heaven, it's like the higher level student, the better perception, better understanding. We don't have as good of an understanding. In either way, though, God is giving the same message. God is just as present. Our job is to raise our academic bar in the, in the analogy, if you will, so we can better understand God, so we can bring God into this world. There happens, there, there's the concept called tzimtzum, God hiding himself. God hides himself from this world. He's very much present, but he puts himself, uh, he makes himself, um, if you will, invisible, so we can't see him. So spiritually, well, not geographically, but spiritually, you know, we always imagine heaven, hell, earth as geographical locations. Heaven is above, hell is below, and somehow earth ended up in the middle. But none of this is geographical. This is all spiritual. In terms of revelation, heaven has a higher level of revelation. It's like the student that has a better comprehension. Earth has a lower level of divine revelation, very low. So spiritually, we're called the lowest of realms, not geographically, but spiritually, there's the least amount of revelation. There's the least amount of, um, of the ability to relate to God's presence, to God's relevance. Although God is very much relevant, we don't see that naturally. And it's our mission in this world to reveal that divine presence in this world. That's what it means God wants to dwell in the lowest of realms. It's spiritually low because there's a lack of revelation and we're here to bring in that revelation. But wouldn't Gehenna be a lower realm? Geh no, good question though. Um, Gehenna, hell, purgatory. Uh, it's very clear who, who run, who's in charge in purgatory. It's very mm. clear that God is in charge. So, um, so even though geographically it seems lower, um, in terms of in, revelation, it's actually higher. Yeah, exactly. In the movies, it's lower geographically. You go downstairs, <laughs> right? But <laughs> don't learn Tanya from Hollywood. <laughs> right. So one of the rabbis in that movie, the Australian movie, uh, one of the Chabad rabbis, um, and you may have said the same thing. He He made the point that this is the this realm is the only realm where God allows himself not to be seen. Um, because obviously he's going to be seen all the time in heaven and, and, and known and perceived. And because he wants man to, he wants man to reveal him. This is the only place where you could live your whole life and never even think about God. Exactly. Not that he wants that, but but he allows that. Well, he's 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 allowing for free choice. He's allowing, empowering us to be intentional in our relationship, which makes the relationship very real. 
it's very difficult to have a relationship with somebody who just agrees with you no matter what, without any autonomy. A relationship requires both parties having autonomy. Can't have a relationship with a robot. Or like uh, these days it would be a uh, Siri or Exactly. Alexa, you can't, Alexa. Well, that, that's actually, yeah, that's a very relatable example. You can't have a relationship with Siri. Siri's going to do whatever you want. Um, and when Siri messes up, because she can't hear you, she's not going to get it. going to know. It's not a relationship. There's no autonomy. God hides himself, which gives us autonomy. And um, that, that's why, by the way, I'm when God revealed the Torah to us on Mount Sinai and we said, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll accept it. So wait a minute. The, the, the Talmud says, wait a minute. We essentially fell in love with God. How was that a relationship? We didn't autonomously, if that's a word, we didn't autonomously accept the Torah. We essentially were, were emotionally forced into it. And that's why it says by Purim, we kind of re-accepted the Torah. I think you mean Purim to say... Purim, God was hidden. I think you, the word you mean to say... I think you mean to say unilaterally. 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 What does that mean? It means one side. Bilateral right. would be like an agreement between two parties. Right. In other words, we were inspired. We fell in love with God. It wasn't really a choice. So God... So the story is or I've heard commentary that God offered the Torah to all the other nations before he offered it to the Hebrews and every other nation turned it down. Correct. 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 But then when he offered it to us, when we officially agreed, formally agreed on Mount Sinai, it was a very heavenly experience. It was the only time where God actually revealed himself to, to, to the entire Jewish people. I don't, I don't Essentially. We were, I don't think we were forced into it. I think we... Well, we weren't, we weren't forced. We weren't literally forced, but emotionally, it's how could we have said no? But what, wasn't there something that um, Everybody else Mount, said no. Mount Sinai was going to be dropped on us if we didn't accept it? Or so, so, well, that's what it means by forced. Hmm. We, we were yeah. to a degree, we were forced. God did offer it to the to, to the nations of the world, but I, I guess the revelation didn't really didn't have that revelation, didn't have the same experience. And Jews have been saying no ever since. What? <laughs> Some Jews have been saying no ever since. <laughs> now they don't have a choice. That's it. So but 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 going back to what you were saying, David it's exactly what we're saying here. God really hides himself. He works really hard to hide himself. Um, which gives us that autonomy to actually bring him in this world. It's called the, you know, the Hebrew word for world, Olam. Olam has a, another meaning. It shares a root word with the word Helen, which means concealment. Because the very existence of our world conceals God. 
And the way he describes it here, on the top of page 401, And this physical world is the lowest rung in the chain of spiritual worlds, since there's nothing lower than it in the context to which God's light is hidden. And here's, here's the, uh, the punchline here. A darkness doubled and redoubled. The world is not only dark, it's a doubled and redoubled darkness, which means it's so dark that we don't even realize how dark it is. Sometimes we're lost, but at least we know we're lost. In this world, the default is, unless we get inspired, unless we have some sort of clarity and guidance, the default is we're lost and we don't even know how lost we are. That's how dark it is, which, is, which makes every bit of light we bring into this world that much more meaningful. there was a Hasidic leader known as the Dubna Magid. The Magid of Dubna, which was some town somewhere in Eastern Europe. Magid means a preacher. He'd go around and inspire, trying to inspire people. And he gave an analogy for the exile that the world is in that we're describing. He gave this in context of the exile of of the base of Mikdash being destroyed, but it's the same idea. That's when real darkness came into this world. He said there was once a family whom they couldn't pay their rent. This is uh, an analogy given several hundred years ago, I believe. They couldn't pay their rent. So the landlord, as was common, in that uh, side of the world in that time period, the landlord took them and threw them into a dungeon. Right? They're imprisoned. And once a day, the door would open up from the ceiling, right, the little hole, and some food would be dropped in. And they were lost, obviously. They were exiled, but they knew they were exiled. They knew it, they understood it. And they decided at this point, we have to just embrace life as we have it. And they began to expand their family. They had children. And their children heard from their parents that this isn't real life. Real life is above that little hole that we see. Out there, there's a world. There's people, there's businesses, there's trees, there's mountains, there's oceans, there's so much beyond this little cave. That's what they know from their parents. There's more to them than just the little door opening up and food coming down. Time Many years go by and these children who grow up in this cave, in this dungeon, grow older and they begin to have a family. And they tell over the narrative that they know from their parents to their children. That our grandparents are imprisoned in this dungeon 
And that's why we're born in this dungeon. And every day somebody comes and sends down food. But really, beyond this dungeon, outside of that entrance, that hole, there's so much more to reality. There's so much more to existence. And they have strong faith, right? The children have strong faith. The grandchildren, okay, it's a nice story, right? I could pass that on to my kids. It's a good one. A little cynical, right? The great-grandkids come around many, many years later in this dungeon. And they're told about this narrative. What's the narrative? The narrative is that beyond the four walls of this huge dungeon, outside of that hole in the entrance, beyond food coming mysteriously, there's actually a person giving that food. And the reason why we entered into this dungeon is because our great-great-grandparents didn't pay their rent. But really outside, there's a huge world of businesses, of entrepreneurship, of trees, of life, of wildlife, of animal life. There's so much out there. And they're like, what a legend. Good ones. Right? These great-great-great-grandkids, they're cynical. They are not just lost. They don't even know they're lost. The original family that got thrown in knew they were lost. The children knew they were lost. The grandkids, eh. These great, great grandkids, not only are they lost, they don't even know they're lost. The Dubna Magid says this is the story of exile. There's so much more to existence, to reality, to purpose and meaning in this world than what meets the eye. It really is. But sometimes we not only get lost, sometimes we don't even know we're lost. It's not only a darkness, it's a doubled and redoubled darkness. Which gives us so which gives so much meaning into why we exist in this world. To why God wanted you to end up where you are. Because there's so much darkness and you have a mission, you have a job to illuminate it. That's our job as Jewish people. That's what we're here for. In fact, you you need to look no further than this week's Torah portion. The Torah starts off with God creating the world in six days. And resting on the seventh. What is the first of all of creation? The first day number one. Let there be light. There was nobody yet um, in existence to benefit from that light. Why is it the first creation? Man did not yet exist. Hum- uh, animal life did not yet exist. Plant life did not yet exist. So if there's nobody yet to benefit from that light... Why is it the first creation? The answer is, it's actually a mission statement. Let there be light. When God said that, it's actually his mission statement for what he wants in this world. He creates a dark world and he tells us, let there be light. We need to bring light into this world. That's why we're here. Because if we just want to experience light, we could stay in heaven. 
We want to provide light. That's why God sent us down to earth. And that light is through the light of the Torah and its mitzvah. It takes a lot of faith to see beyond the darkness. And that's why we learn Tanya. That's why we learn Hasidus, Hasidic teachings. That's why we daven. That's why we try to inspire ourselves and to learn Torah and to get clarity. So we can get clarity and realize that we can't just live delusionally. Life can often be one big delusion, delusional experience. There's so much more. That's why in the Shema prayer, by the way, when we recite the Shema, we say Hashem Echad, God is one, which essentially means God is incredibly relevant. What do we do? We cover our eyes because we're reminding ourselves that to experience God's relevance, we need to go, we need to realize there's more than what's going to meet our eyes. That's going to be faith. How does this fit? Now, in other words, what, now what do we need to do about this? What are we going to do? We'll discuss that in next week's uh, lesson. For now, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. All right. And we're going off the record.